The Accounting Matters Podcast lives up to its name. Every other week, we bring you a new episode where we cover vital accounting topics that actually matter to accounting professionals. Each episode, we introduce a new topic and then highlight and discuss the key areas. We're your hosts, Adam Olson and Zach Smith, and we hope you stick around for all things accounting from A to Z. From Embark's headquarters in Dallas, Texas, this is Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark. Hi, hello, good afternoon. It's great to be with each of you. I'm Zach Smith, Embark's East Region Market President, and I'm joined with my co-host, Adam Olson, Embark's Accounting Advisory Practice Leader. On this week's episode, we'll be discussing ASC 326 CECL. While many companies may feel like they just caught their breath getting through their recent adoption of the new leasing standard in 2022, they can't put a pause on the new standard adoption just yet. Today, we'll walk through the highlights of the new credit loss, ASC 326, that private companies will be tackling next on their gap to-do list. To help us in this discussion, we're welcoming back our resident guest, Nicole Harger, a senior director in Embark's National Quality Group. Adam, Nicole, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, of course. Happy to be here on our 50th episode of Accounting Matters. I think that's a milestone and who better to have as a guest than our frequent recurring (laughs) guest, Nicole. Yeah, Uh, very exciting. Can't believe we've hit 50. Time has flown by. Sure has, but plenty to talk about today and and in future episodes. So thanks to everyone for uh, continuing to uh, tune in. To listen in, absolutely. All right, Adam, we've been here before. In fact, it doesn't seem that long ago that public companies had adopted CECL. The time is up for private companies though in 2023. What do we got? (laughs) Yeah, so kind of like what you said in the introduction, if you were, you know, I think the the CECL standard's been out for a bit um, and then obviously Um, was delayed a bit for private companies due to COVID, but public companies actually adopted this back in 2020. So, um, you know, now going back three years or so, which doesn't seem like that long of a time, but you know, I think think distortion of time uh, is all relative for sure, you know, between the pandemic and then just myself getting older, um, you know, time seems to to move very quickly. But like you said, uh, the standards here today, so um, private companies are are definitely going to have to kind of jump on the bandwagon and at least start thinking through, you know, how this standard is going to impact some of their current accounting that they were used to in 2022. Okay, so maybe we have some listeners that have been blocking out all CECL conversations over the past few years, maybe myself included. How dare you, right? But let's go ahead and spend some time on the first part of this episode giving an overview of the new standard starting with you know why did the FASB implement this and what assets are actually in scope yeah so there's kind of two major subtopics within the standard itself um but since you know i think today's conversation we really want to kind of hone in on what typical private companies are going to be dealing with and when we say private companies we're referring to kind of like non-banking non-lending type institutions so those, those entities that have assets within the scope of the standard, but they're kind of your more um, typical commercial type assets. So we're talking like your accounts receivables, your loan receivables, um, contract assets under ASC 606, um, people that maybe have lessor activities, so they have net investments and leases on their balance sheet. Um, those items are addressed in subtopic 20 in ASC 326. And so, 
you know, we'll spend most of our time talking about that, but I would like to at least highlight that there are other um, aspects of the standard itself that were covered more broadly as it relates to credit losses. So to the extent you are a private entity that has some of these other nuances, you know, you'll definitely want to look to some of the other subtopic sections in, in 326. So this could be covering things like available for sale securities, um, which the guidance changed a bit on. Um, off balance sheet exposures are also exposed to the credit loss standard guarantees, beneficial interests and the like. So just wanted to make sure people were aware that those were there. Um, but just kind of circling back to our most common types of assets. So Let's stick with accounts receivable because that'll probably be a recurring, <laughs> recurring item we talk about today because that is, you know, generally what most private entities are probably dealing with as it relates to CECL. So just to kind of explain what the historical gap was for those types of assets, you know, when you were evaluating any credit losses on your accounts receivable, loan receivables, et cetera, under existing U.S. GAAP, it was really done on what's known as this incurred loss methodology which basically established a criteria that you don't recognize any loss until it's probable that a loss has actually been incurred. So there was a kind of a delayed recognition um, trigger for any types of credit losses under the historic model. Okay. And so Adam, what actually drove the need to change the accounting model for credit losses? Was there a specific situation that happened? Anything that we need to dive in there? Yeah, so it actually dates back quite a bit. So um, really almost back to, you know, kind of like if you think about the financial crisis we had back in 2008. So, you know, even even kind of predating some of that and then that obviously tied in and kind of, you know, rolled the issue into a bigger issue. But there was always a concern kind of with the existing guidance from and this is from preparers as well as users of the financial statements that companies were almost kind of handcuffed from being able to recognize expected losses uh, because under um, historic U.S. GAAP, they hadn't really tripped that probable threshold. So even if they knew like in the future there was going to potentially be an issue with something like under the recognition model for the incurred loss um, with that probable threshold, they weren't able to do anything. And so that, you know, the global financial crisis, like I said, it, it kind of highlighted that, it underscored those concerns. And it really led, you know, the FASB to kind of take a look at like the existing guidance. And there was, there was like an advisory group that was kind of put together, which was saying, hey, we need to be looking at more forward thinking alternatives to this incurred loss model because we feel like it's very short sighted. And you even had preparers that were frustrated because they couldn't, like they, like I said, they knew there could be an issue with some other assets, but they weren't able to do anything about it. So. Um, so that, that advisory group kind of recommended that the FASB needed to look into this and said ultimately it led to the FASB putting this project um, on their technical agenda and then ultimately issuing the final standard, which really kind of upended and changed just the way we think about credit losses um, for in-scope assets. Yeah, helpful. Nicole, over to you. So at a high level, what does the new standard take into account when evaluating a credit loss? Yeah, so the, the new standard requires companies to take into account a broader range of reasonable and supportable um, information when estimating expected losses. And there are really four key concepts to this. Um, the first is that an expected loss must be based on an asset's amortized cost. And then second, companies should reflect the risk of loss even when remote. So this means that an estimate of zero credit loss would still be would only be appropriate in like very limited circumstances. Um, next, 
uh, companies would need to reflect their losses over the expected remaining contractual life of an asset. And then lastly, companies need to consider available relevant information about the collectability of cash flows. Um, this includes information about past events, current conditions, and reasonable and supportable forecasts of future economic conditions. So, so how does one even begin to estimate expected losses for their assets in scope under the CECL standard? Yeah, so that's a great question um, because the standard didn't actually provide a required methodology for measurement, but it did provide some examples of different approaches to use that would be appropriate. The first would be um, a discounted cash flow method, and this is where the estimated loss would be the difference between the amortized cost basis and then the present value of principal and interest cash flows expected to be received. Um, another a common method, I guess, for general trade receivables is the aging schedule method. And this one calculates expected losses based on how long a receivable has actually been outstanding. Um, another method would be the loss rate method. And so here companies would calculate expected losses using an estimated loss rate and then multiply that rate um, by its assets amortized cost. And then lastly, another common method would be the roll rate method. And this is which estimated losses, um, and this estimates losses by using historical trends in credit quality. Okay, so once a company has determined the method in which they will calculate their expected loss, what happens next? Yeah, so the standard actually does um, require companies to pool their assets or group their assets based on risk characteristics. Companies are allowed to decide which risk characteristics to use um, when pooling their assets. So some common examples that entities might consider would be the financial asset type or the term of the financial asset, the risk rating, um, internal or external credit scores or credit ratings, the industry of the borrower, or the geographical location, just um, to name a few. And I mentioned that in assets, um, term is a risk characteristic consi to consider for pooling. Um, whether or not a contract term is used for pooling, it's very important for companies to determine the contract term of their financial assets as the term really does greatly impact the size of the expected loss. Um, this is because companies are required to estimate expected losses over an asset's entire contract term. And so therefore, just generally speaking, the longer the term the larger the expected loss. And then once a company has actually pooled their assets, the next step is to measure their expected losses for these assets. So Nicole, is there a starting point where companies should use, that companies should use when beginning their calculation? Where do we go? Yep, so typically um, a company will start with historical losses and then adjustments are made to those historical losses to reflect any differences in asset-specific risk characteristics and economic conditions. So for example, an adjustment would be made for an asset-specific risk characteristic, risk characteristic um, if the current pooling of assets has a different portfolio mix or different terms than those under the kind of historical assets. Um, and then as far as economic conditions, 
This needs to include both current conditions and reasonable and supportable forecasts of future conditions. Okay, so for these adjustments that we're speaking about that are made to historical losses, are these adjustments set for the term of the asset? So no, so companies um, must reassess the facts and circumstances of these adjustments and make updates as necessary at each reporting period. Okay. Yeah, and I would just add there too, like it, they also have to reassess that pooling. So like as companies are yeah, thinking about how point. they pool their assets based on certain risk characteristics, like those could change over the contractual term of an asset. So some things may move between different pools or you may create new pools. Um, so that's just something else that also has to be re-looked re at on a recurring basis. Okay, I think that makes complete sense. And it sounds like it's consistent with historical gap. Uh, what happens when an entity though writes off financial assets that they deem to be uncollectible? Uh, is it gone forever? Are the companies able to still consider expected recoveries? How do we handle that situation? Um, no, it's not, it's not gone forever companies are able to consider expected recoveries of amounts previously written off. Um, while rare, this could even result in the allowance for credit losses being negative or in a debit position. So I've actually got a question <laughs> on a, a related note while we're talking about expected recoveries here that I could see a lot of potential clients um, you know, asking about. So could there ever be a circumstance where a reporting entity writes up an asset's amortized costs for an expected recovery? No. <laughs> um, companies should not increase the amortized cost basis of the financial instrument that was previously written off. So instead, these amounts are recognized in the allowance for credit losses. So for example, if a company does end up receiving cash, it should be recorded as either an increase to the allowance or an offset to credit loss expense. All right, Nicole, I got one last question for you now. Uh, can there ever be a circumstance where a company truly expects no losses? So, um, there is an exception for financial assets with a zero loss expectation. And we kind of briefly touched on this at the beginning of the episode. Um, but if there is an expectation that a financial asset will have a zero loss, an entity is not required to estimate or recognize an allowance. Now, I would say this is more of the exception than the rule, as most companies will have some amount of um, expected loss reserve, even if it's yeah, very, the very immaterial. Yeah, goes into like, except, you know, or types of assets where you might expect a zero clock, a zero like credit loss, like expectation is something like a government security, which is generally viewed as risk-free, although <laughs> today's as, climate and as of this recording, we're talking debt ceilings debt and all sorts ceilings, of stuff. Yeah. So uh, be interesting how that, that assumption holds up, but that's that's really kind of what it's reserved for is very limited circumstances. And so even if you view something as very, very, very little risk, there's probably at least a potential um, small immaterial amount, like Nicole was saying, that should be recognized for a credit loss on that asset. Yeah, um, and so Adam, Nicole briefly mentioned the aging method previously. Since many companies are likely being pulled into the CSIL because of their accounts receivable, I imagine that we will continue to use their aging bucket process as much as we can. Uh, what are some of the things to keep in mind for companies that want to do this but still align with the requirements of the new credit loss standard? 
Yeah, no, that's a good point. I think a lot of companies are trying to understand like what they're doing today for their in-card loss method. So a lot of companies do look at just, you know, aging buckets for their receivables. And if you fall in this bucket, you're reserved X percentage and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they kind of use that, that methodology. And there's nothing to say you can't do that um, today under the Cecil kind of standard. And it actually kind of falls into this like um, kind of loss rate model that, you know, Nicole was talking about as, as a potential methodology to use. So, you know, companies could continue to use their aging, um, aging methodology. I think what they have to look at is, you know, we're, we talked about the kind of starting point for a CISO, like credit loss estimate is first establishing that historical loss rate. So you'd want to one, make sure that your, your aging analysis or whatever you're using, uh, aligns with the guidance for how you establish a historical lo your historical loss rate. And then you also want to even just make sure that your current aging analysis is reflective of how you would actually pool your in-scope assets. So are you pooling by just maturity of the, the due date of your receivables, or is there a further breakdown that you might need to consider? Like if you've got customers that are overseas versus domestic, do you, are they more risky overseas versus domestic or in certain types of industries or things like that? So just making sure you're, you're thinking through the guidance there. Um, but usually when it comes to trade receivables, you know, they're short term in nature. So a little bit less risky, a little bit easier to kind of apply the CECL guidance. So even once you've established your historical loss rate, you know, the guidance will say you should look at current economic conditions. So, you know, in today's climate, maybe that is something that actually has a little bit more weight than historically it might otherwise. So you come up with your historical loss rate, but then you look at what are the current conditions today? Do we need to make any adjustments based on, you know, what the historical data maybe was showing versus what we're feeling today? And then obviously the last layer is to kind of add on those reasonable and supportable forecasts. Um, I think a lot of companies, and I think it's a, it's a reasonable assumption to make, especially for shorter term receivables. So things that are, you know, you got payment terms for 30 days or maybe 60 days. Um, you know, I think you can argue that any type of reasonable or supportable forecast, you know, the impact to your credit loss is probably not significant. So maybe isn't actually carry that much weight in the analysis, but you know, times are unique now, economic uncertainty is high. So that could, you know, even that assumption might be a little bit more challenged in today's economic climate. But then if you have longer term receivables or you've got contract assets that are over multiple periods, then clearly you're going to have to do a little bit more due diligence around coming up with reasonable and supportable forecast to kind of add on that forward looking component to your estimate. Okay. And, and since reasonable and supportable forecast appears to be one of the heavy lifts in applying the new guidance, especially where private companies have longer term receivables or even loans outstanding, can companies use different types of forecasts for different types of assets? Yeah, they can. So, you know, you really have to think or through like the macroeconomic factors that are driving your credit losses. And that for sure could differ like for different assets. So it could, you know, even just the type of your receivables, you could have different forecasts that are relevant. So we talked about geography. So, you know, if you've got customers overseas, you know, maybe you're looking at reasonable and supportable forecasts that are different than domestic customers when you're thinking about economic drivers that might 
adjust your your credit loss estimate so it's definitely fine to have that i think you just want to make sure that whatever you decide to use it you know you're you're validating the source particularly if you're using external forecasts to understand what is the source of this data or the reliability of the data and just making sure it's still relevant um, and correlates with the the loss experience that you're trying to evaluate for the asset. Okay. Now, if management is looking at external forecasts to serve as a data point, uh, and there is publicly available yet conflicting information, how do we want to think about that? No, that's a good point as well. I mean, you know, a lot of these reasonable and supportable forecasts, you know, they're you could be looking at different, you know, economists' outlooks on things or analysts' outlooks on things, and we know not everyone is always in perfect alignment on how they see things or view things. So, um, you know, I think it's the J word comes in here, like it does in the other areas of accounting. So you have to use your judgment, um, which, you know, I think some preparers hate hearing that word because that means more work. But you know, that's really what you have to think about. So, uh, you know, you can the guidance obviously expects you to look to um, external information when it's available. Like you wanna look for observable information. It's generally considered more reliable, but you can also use your own internal information to make these assumptions. So I think conflicting information is okay. You could have certain entities that take one position on something and explain that that's, they use whatever forecast and explaining how they came up with their reserves and their reporting and someone else could use something else that's, you know, it's supportable and it's relevant to what they're evaluating and it's fine. I think, again, you just have to make sure you're staying within the boundaries of like, do you actually consider this reasonable and supportable data? Not just something that maybe fits the answer you're looking for, but actually is, you know, viable and something you should rely on. Yeah. So Adam, if a company follows the formula for creating their CECL estimate, mm -hmm. are they still able to make adjustments to what their model suggests as the appropriate estimate? Yeah, you can. So, and, and I've seen clients do this where they might make minor tweaks for certain pools of assets. So you kind of go through the whole CECL like equation. So you've got like your historical loss, you layer in your current, you know, any adjustments for current, you know, economic conditions, and you layer in adjustments for the reasonable and supportable forecasts and drivers there. You know, that's obviously going to spit out some type of credit loss reserve, but there are you know, there could also be other qualitative factors that maybe hadn't gotten looked at in any of those steps. So, you know, you can make those qualitative adjustments if you um, if you deem them reasonable. I think you just want to make sure that, you know, obviously you need to document and your understanding and your rationale for that, particularly for your auditors, but then also just making sure as you're kind of laying out your rationale for why you're going to make an adjustment that it wasn't something that was already potentially included in another adjustment. And it's just maybe being characterized differently. So you're not double counting something. Double counting it. Yeah. Yeah. That's helpful. I know private companies can be acquisitive and enter into transactions where they may acquire financial assets. Mm -hmm. Does Cecil impact how a company thinks about purchased financial assets? It does. So the, the kind of the catch here is really going to depend on whether or not the purchased financial asset is kind of deemed as having any credit deterioration or not. Um, so, you know, said differently, if you, if you acquire a business and let's say it's got financial assets and they don't have any credit to your deterioration, so they're just, you know, ordinary financial assets, then you're just going to account for those like you would most assets and liabilities in a business combination. So you just fair value them. 
Um, on the other hand, uh, Cecil did provide guidance for how you think about um, purchase financial assets that do have credit deterioration. So you hear, you'll hear people call these like PCD assets. Um, and, and the guidance here actually changed how you should recognize those in an asset acquisition, or not sorry, in a business combination. So just a, you know, a traditional acquisition. So purchase financial assets with credit deterioration, they no longer follow the fair value model. So they're one of the exceptions to kind of recognition of acquired assets and assumed liabilities. Um, but instead here, what you do is you'll basically recognize an allowance with a corresponding increase to the amortized cost basis of the financial asset as of the acquisition date. And this is basically to just avoid having any, um, you know, kind of day one acquisition date like expense related to credit losses. Obviously, once you've acquired the asset, then you know you would eventually establish um, a credit loss on day one, but that would go into the subsequent period. It doesn't impact your kind of opening balance sheet accounting. Yeah, so helpful. But how does a company at acquisition determine if credit deterioration exists or not to apply this guidance? It'll depend a little bit here. So um, PCD accounting, you know, it can apply to a group of similar kind of purchased financial assets if they have similar kind of risk characteristics, or you could even have just individual purchased financial assets that are considered credit deteriorating. And it really comes down to whether or not as of, so on the acquisition date, um, whether any of those assets have experienced, and this is you know the wording from the guidance itself, more than an insignificant deterioration <laughs> in credit quality since the origination or issuance um, of that asset. And so that's an acquire assessment that has to be done. So a lot of people are like, well, did the FASB explain what more than an insignificant <laughs> deterioration in credit quality is? And, and the answer is no, which there you go. And I think they were purposeful and not defining it because they didn't intend that um, preparers would only apply this kind of PCD accounting model to you know, financial assets that are in this like non-accrual status or something that would have been impaired only under legacy U.S. GAAP. Um, but they really wanted people to kind of have some judgment in applying this here. So obviously without a strict definition of what, you know, is considered more than an insignificant deterioration, um, you know, you're going to have to apply a little, you know, thought here and, and some due diligence in your thinking when you're looking at the acquisition of, you know, purchased financial assets. And so some things you might think about is just like at the time of acquisition and in relative comparison of the credit quality of the assets at the time the assets were originated, you want to compare that to the credit quality of the assets at the time of acquisition. So has there been, you know, like just over kind of the contractual life up to that point, like what have we observed and does it, does it seem to suggest that you've got more than an insignificant deterioration? And, and that's easier said than done because, you know, a lot of times as the um, acquire, you may not have visibility and all that because you obviously weren't the originator of those um, at the time. You weren't around at the date of origination for those assets. So, um, you know, it could be a little bit challenging operationally sometimes to make that determination. So, you know, maybe something that people as part of the deal side, um, just making sure they have access to that information from the sellers. Yeah, great points there, Adam. So Nicole, let's swing back over here to you. Uh, let's change to the reporting side of okay. things. So yep. how does the new standard change presentation in any of the required disclosures? 
Yeah, so the new standard requires disclosures from both a quantitative and a qualitative perspective, um, including information about an entity's financial assets and their related expected credit losses. Um, the overall objective of the required disclosures um, is really to ensure that users understand the credit risk inherent um, in its financial instruments and how management monitors the credit quality of that portfolio um, to understand management's actual estimate of expected credit losses and then changes in that estimate um, that have occurred during the current reporting period. Okay, and I know public companies, excluding small reporting companies, have already adopted the standard for both interim periods and annual reporting. And 2023, though, is the year for everyone else. So do these companies have until year-end reporting to start reflecting the new standard, or is there a different time period that we need to think about? Yeah, so unfortunately, no. Um, the standard is effective for interim periods this year as well. Um, now, most private companies don't issue interim financial statements, um, so they might have until year-end reporting to reflect the CECL model. Um, I say might because many private companies are required by either lenders, private equity, owners um, to report quarterly financial information that is in accordance with GAAP. Um, so if companies do have those requirements, then uh, the adoption of CECL would need to be reflected in those interim reporting. Okay, so let's talk adoption and transition then. So how does a company appropriately adopt the new standard? Yeah, so companies will apply these amendments using a what's called a modified retrospective approach. Um, this is through a cumulative effect adjustment to retained earnings as of the beginning of the first reporting period in which the standard is adopted. So for companies adopting in 2023, the cumulative effect adjustment gets applied to opening 2023 retained earnings. Yeah, so Adam, you know, a good amount of public companies have already adopted this standard. Have we learned anything from them? Anything you can share with our listeners? Uh, I can. So yeah, so like I said, all, all public business entities should have adopted CECL, you know, with the exception of smaller reporting companies um, back in 2020. And so you know, there's a lot of learnings that probably came from that. I think a lot of people were just, you know, it's like with any major standard, it's just preparation, you know, having your team ready for it, making sure you understand the standard, the timing of it. Um, and then like, just data, right? CECL is a big data-driven standard. There's a lot of data that's needed to just do the analysis and to aggregate data and make sure you're assessing things correctly. So I think, you know, making sure you've got, you know, reliable data, you know where your data is coming from and just kind of holistically looking at what the, the standard is going to change in your processes will be important. But then in addition to that, you know, I think what tends to happen with any major standard is the FASB itself also kind of does a hard look at how well those standards are working. So <laughs> they've done this with all the major standards that they've issued recently, and they've done these what they call these post-implementation reviews. Um, so they did one for revenue recognition, and these are ongoing too, right? So they continue to kind of look at these things, and one for leases, and then there's been one as well for CECL. And really like the, the purpose of them is to just identify, you know, they create a standard recognizing it's 
you know, there's going to be practice issues that come, you know, come to the surface, things that people point out that maybe weren't originally thought through or just complexities that weren't anticipated from the new standard. And that's not really their, the, the goal of the FASB is to make things harder, right? They want to make more <laughs> useful information for investors and users, but um, not at the expense that it's, it's a significant burden to preparers. So the post-implementation review will then like put out you know, accounting standard updates that are targeted improvements to help correct, you know, issues or things that are identified in the standard. And so even, you know, recently back in, you know, 2022, I think there's been a number of ones that were even done, you know, prior to this, but one of the more recent ones, for example, was, you know, ASU 2022-02, which really kind of looked at, um, you know, the creditor accounting for troubled debt restructurings. And there were some, questions around how Cecil interacted with the original guidance for trouble debt restructurings. And it really kind of created a complexity that um, didn't really provide that much more decision useful information. So the FASB really looked at it through that standard update um, and, and made some changes and eliminated some guidance to help just help ease the burden there and just kind of pointed to other existing restructuring guidance that preparers need to think through. So they continue to look at a number of things, like I said, um, and, and make improvements. And so, you know, as even private companies potentially adopt this new standard, there, there might be issues that are specific to private companies or complexities that private companies are having to endure that are public companies are, but maybe it's not as valuable to the users of private company financial statements. And so we could see even, you know, the, the private company council. So kind of the, the, you know, private FASB subgroup that, you know, looks at issues for accounting and reporting for private companies and see if they, um, you know, take on any specific projects for issues or um, concerns that are raised by, you know, private preparers. Okay. So, Nicole, I can't imagine we have a discussion <laughs> over new accounting standards without talking a bit about how processes and controls are impacted. Can we touch a bit on what accounting and finance teams need to keep top of mind around their internal controls for this new standard? Yeah, so that's a that's a great point. Um, the new standard will obviously impact the internal control environment. Um, taking a fresh look at the internal control environment is key and should be done early in the adoption process and then also throughout the various implementation phases. So for example, and Adam touched on this a little bit, accumulation of data is going to be a key element um, for companies when developing their credit loss estimates. So determining the relevance and reliability of the data being used um, in the forecasting process won't be just very simple for, for most entities. Um, and then additionally, developing a forecast that is both reasonable and supportable um, may consider both publicly available information and involve subject matter experts, um, which may be from internal, external, third-party resources. So the information being used, the judgments that are being made um, need to be supported by effective internal control structures. And um, internal controls will vary depending on how the information is der derived. So, for example, for third-party provided data, management may consider control activities to validate the integrity, relevance, and reliability. Um, understanding the source data 
um, and how that data will be used in developing the forecast will be critical to avoid placing inadvertent reliance. You know, also with the need to know, you know, your pooling of your assets with similar risk characteristics, companies will need to ensure that their process um, does include controls to address this requirement. And those are just some examples of how the internal control environment could be impacted. Yeah, super helpful, Nicole. You know, as we wrap up, are there any other key reminders for our listeners that we need to talk through? Yeah, so I think um, just one thing to mention is that, you know, even if companies know or don't think that the adoption of CECL is going to have a material impact to their financial statements, companies are still going to need to put together an assessment to prove that out. And so, you know, their their auditors will be asking for it. Um, and just because it's not material today doesn't mean that it won't be at another reporting period. So, yeah, and yeah, no, I would agree. I've been hearing that for a while is that we don't think it'll have any impact and we don't we're not worried about it. And, and, and that could largely be relatively true. But, you know, that conversation, a year or two ago maybe was different and maybe not actually because we were you know those were COVID days so things were very (laughs) uncertain then but I still think things continue to be uncertain today Um, and so you know I think just that uncertainty alone it would just be prudent for companies to kind of for sure go through the exercise and in many cases your auditors are going to be asking for it anyways about for the adoption. Great points. Well listen Adam, Nicole, as always, such a pleasure to be with both of you guys. Thank you so much for uh, sitting here today with me to talk through these new standards and some of the new guidance here. Uh, for our listeners, thanks again for tuning in to the Accounting Matters podcast, powered by Embark. We'll see you next time. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.